Um, now we'll start with the message. I want to just ask, just encourage you and share with you something that uh, you are marketed to and you are brainwashed by our culture, by our TV. Uh, your kids are marketed to and brainwashed. It starts on cartoons when they're watching cartoons as little kids, these little innocent cartoons. They, our kids are being taught a damaging, destructive worldview from the time they flip on a cartoon. And, and you have been taught that. When your kids go to school, they are systematically brainwashed. And uh, I don't know if you realize that, but here's one of the ways that you can know. Are there ever any things that you know this is wrong? God says this is wrong. But you sit back and go, but is it really? It seems so harsh to say that. How could I ever say that to people? And you start to question things that you know for sure. Uh, has that ever, have you ever faced that? Have you ever had that situation? You need to realize that our culture is run by Satan, the God of this world, and his goal is to destroy your life, to harm you, to take the good things that God has planned for you and to corrupt them, to pollute them, and to use them against you. And... So my encouragement for us is as we approach our Christian life, we need to keep this verse in mind. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing, you may discern what, the will of, what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You know, this morning we are going to come back to this whole issue of sexual immorality. Last week, we talked about the Old Testament and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, how God's word, Old and New Testament, is authoritative in our life. But when it comes to the Old Testament, we need to think about that properly. We need to make sure we don't apply it incorrectly. But all of God's word is necessary and needed. And Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Second thing that we talked about was anger and how important it is to deal with the heart issue of anger. And then we hit lust, and we just kind of touched on that a little bit, so we're back. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if you were hoping that we were done, but we are not done. So um, I want to just encourage us. Proverbs 16, 25, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. What God says is right because God says it. As believers, we are obligated to obey what God says, but what God tells us is always for our best interests. And we need to know that. No matter how things seem, you just take a step back and you trust God. And, and what I want to do today, <clears throat> we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, and we're going to look at this whole issue of lust, adultery, and how that impacts divorce. We're not going to do a full discussion on divorce, but those things are related. Jesus brings them up and talks about them. So we're going to touch on that, but we're also going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, because that is a description of sexual sin. And so that's kind of where we're headed this morning. And I just want you to know that Satan <clears throat> is waging an all-out war on marriage and the family. And the reason for that <clears throat> is because marriage and families 
are God's greatest earthly gift. Um, marriage and families need to function correctly. You need to have a marriage that's not just marked by sexual purity. It needs to be marked by sexual purity. But you need to have a marriage that is, that is an expression of the love and the relationship that God intends. And if you don't have a properly functioning marriage, your home will not be properly functioning. The single place that is the easiest and the most important and the most significant place of evangelism is in your own home. It is godly parents modeling and teaching kids to love God and to walk with the Lord. And uh, if for many of us, you know, I, I won't have you raise your hand, but you could say, how many of you grew up in that home where you had a godly, faithful example, where you were trained and you were taught and you had intimate, open relationships with your parents where you could talk about anything? When you were struggling with sin, your mom and dad were the first people you, you went to. When, when you were dealing with dating relationships, your mom and dad were the first people that you went to and you talked about everything with them. Um, how many of you grew up in that house? Um, not, not many, but I just want you to know, uh, I didn't grow up in that house. Michelle didn't grow up in that house. But I can tell you this, I, I know plenty of houses that are that way. And one of the things that I've loved in the body of Christ is to see people that are living and functioning in a way, and I just think, you know what? That's not what I had, but that's what I want to have. And to be able to work toward that, to be able to get help, from the body of Christ in being the people that God wants us to be. And so that's critical. Now, when it comes to this whole issue of uh, sexual immorality, um, um, sex and marriage is something that is significant for you as an individual. It is significant. It is critical for parents to teach their kids. One of the things that I think is kind of funny is every once in a while, I'll run into parents who, um, when you read the Bible, the Bible can actually be fairly graphic in certain places. And I meet parents that want to shelter their first and second grade kids from some of the stories in the Bible because they're kind of graphic and they're kind of significant. And I just want you to know, I never did that with my kids. I took those really radical stories and we read them right off and I started teaching my kids about God's wrath, God's judgment, purity, sexual problems, all the kinds of things that happen. And I just want you to know that if you're waiting to expose your kids to these things later, uh, you're missing the boat because <clears throat> they're actually already being taught. Uh, they're being taught by all of their friends. They're being taught by the TV shows that they watch. They're being taught when they go to school. So if you're not talking about these things in your family, you're the only one who's not doing it. Um, I, I looked at a study for uh, California public school curriculum and kindergarten through third grade, they systematically instruct kids about um, gender identity. So, and I just want you to know that what they're teaching kindergartners, first graders, second graders, third graders is destructive. It is harmful. And so if you're not teaching your kids, they're still learning it at school. Fourth through sixth grade, the curriculum is to systematically teach kids about sexual feelings and sexual behavior. That is elementary school. And even if you pull your kids out of school, if they have friends that they play baseball with or that they hang out with, 
everybody that's around them is being taught and instructed those things. So for Michelle and I, we deliberately put our kids in public school because we wanted them to be exposed to all those things. We wanted them to learn those things. And back when our kids were in school, they used to have to notify parents. They don't have to do that anymore. So you may not hear that your kids are being taught those things. They don't notify them, they just teach them. But what we would do is we would figure out what the kids were gonna be learning at school. We would go over it with our kids. So we got these little kids and we're talking about sexual reproduction and all these kinds of things. And we would teach them the truth and then we would tell them the kinds of things that they would be told at school. And so we shepherded, we talked about those kinds of things. And, and I just want you to know, that's what you need to be doing. And even if you don't have kids, that's one of the things that we do in the church, in the body of Christ, is we stand on these things, we model these things, we encourage people in these areas. So, <clears throat> where are we headed this morning? Well, here's where we're headed. Um, we're going to be looking at three specific things. First, sex was made for marriage. Sex was made for marriage. Sexual sin, second thing, is a serious thing. Sexual, thing is, sexual sin is serious. We need to really think about that for what it is. And the third thing is that sexual sin is not hopeless. If you're struggling with that issue in your life currently, it is not hopeless. If, if your life has been dominated by that kind of thing in the past, your life is not hopeless. Um, God has a plan. God is gracious. God will work in your life, and he can restore. There is nothing that you can't destroy. There is no damage that can happen in your life that God doesn't have an answer to. And I just want to remind us, last week we talked about Joni Erickson Tata, and I found out her name is not Joni. I guess I've read about it more than I've heard it. Her name's Johnny, so I was corrected this week about that. Everybody's heard about Joni. Joni, who's Joni? <laughs> but when we talked about her, one of the things that she said was that her handicap was God's greatest grace to her, God's greatest gift. And the sin struggles that you've had, the damage that's happened in your life, God can use that as a gift and a blessing in your life. Um, growing up, I made lots of poor choices. I did not have good training. I was not a believer. It's not that I didn't hear the truth, but I didn't have the structure of a healthy family with a mom and a dad and a dad that was a spiritual leader in my home guiding our family to be healthy. I didn't have that. And I made a lot of choices that were damaging and harmful. And that's been such a blessing in my life because as my kids have grown up, I thought I want to help you not make these same mistakes. And so um, those things are a blessing. They're a blessing in the body of Christ. When we feel the pain and the difficulty and the harm that comes from disobeying God, we can get involved and help other people not be harmed in the same way. And even though Joni's injury, her, 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 her uh, paralysis, Johnny, thank you. <laughs> even though her paralysis was God's greatest gift in her life, we talked about the fact that she is not lining her kids up on the end of a cliff and saying, hey, jump off. God used this to be gracious to me, so it's not a big deal if, if it happens to you too. And in the body of Christ, we need to make sure that we never open the door to damaging, destructive things in other people's lives just because we did it. So um, that's a quick review. Let's jump into where we are headed this morning. 
If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And I want to just kind of look at this section, make a couple observations, and then we're going to jump into it. So here's the first thing as we look at the contextual uh, observations. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. There's a list here where Jesus is going is to show the false teaching of the Pharisees, the way that they were wrong. They took God's truth, God's grace from the Old Testament, and they pulled it out of the heart, and they made it this external religion where you just try to do the right thing, but it didn't matter what was really in your heart. And I just want you to know that was never the intention of the Old Testament. You remember um, 1 Samuel, uh, I think it's 16, 27, when Saul's going to select David, and, and God tells Samuel, Samuel's going to select David, and uh, God says to him, um, don't, look at God, don't look at his outward appearance because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Always in the Old Testament was honoring and obeying God a matter of the heart. But Jesus is going to list off these Old Testament commandments and say, here's what you've been told that's wrong. It's just a focus on externals. God cares about your heart. And Jesus redoes it. And he relists all of these. And we have two that we're going to look at this morning. But you'll notice it says here in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. And there, that is a, a pattern that's just repeated in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. And in this passage, um, he gives an abbreviated section, an abbreviated statement when he makes a transition to immorality and divorce. If you'll look at verse 31, see how it says, it was also said? He shortens it. It means the same thing, but it also shows the unity in this section. The other thing that we see is that this is about sexual immorality, but marriage is in mind because he says, um, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is is talking specifically about sexual unfaithfulness with married people. And then he talks about the whole issue of lust, and it's because sex has its purpose in marriage and only in marriage. Um, <clears throat> so you see that connection there. Talks about committing adultery. If you'll look at verse, um, if you look at verse 32. It says, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So that's that word for sexual immorality. That is a general term used throughout the New Testament that includes not just adultery, but any kind of sexual immorality. In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the reasons for giving somebody a certificate of divorce is if when you got married, you found out they weren't a virgin and they said they were, and then you found out they weren't, that was a reason in the Old Testament to end a marriage. And so um, anyway, so that's, that's this whole issue of divorce. So let's talk about this. Sex is made for marriage. Satan wants to destroy the family. And a lot of times when we think about sexual immorality, we think, that our culture is worse now than it's ever been? Or have you ever heard anybody say, oh yeah, sexual purity, remaining a virgin till marriage. That, that, was, that was old. That was for Jesus Bible times. That's, that's like something in the past, but we've grown, we've developed. We're not like that anymore. We've moved past that. Have you ever heard anything like that? Uh, one of the things I want you to know is that sexual purity has never been a part of any culture. Like just open up your Bible and read it. 
Every culture from the beginning of time has been marked by sexual immorality. We haven't moved past anything. There is nothing that is different today than it has ever been. This is not some archaic old standard. This is just the standard. This is what God says life is supposed to be like. This is what God says believers are supposed to be like. Sexual purity has always been a part of the life, the commitment, the priorities for believers. That's always been true, and that is not different, and that will never change. And so if you're getting brainwashed, and you think that sexual faithfulness is something of the past, you're wrong. Um, that's a very important thing. So let's just look at Genesis chapter 2. God's the one who designed marriage. He made it. He created it. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's talking about sexual activity. Uh, sex is one of the things that God has given men and women to unify them. It is a blessing, it is a gift, and it is only for marriage. In fact, it makes men and women one. And so that's a, a unique connection. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about sex, and I'm just going to mention a few things, but that's a very good detailed passage. But here's some things it says. First of all, sex in marriage is a good thing. That's, that's a good positive thing. It protects from temptation. One of the ways that we, that we bless one another is to make sure that we have a good sex life in marriage, that we're protecting each other from temptation. That's one of the gifts that God gives in marriage. One of the things it says in 1 Corinthians 7 too is that you do not belong to yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Your spouse owns your body. So if you're a man, your wife owns your body. So it's hers. It doesn't belong to anybody else. If you're a woman, your husband owns your body. It is his. It does not belong to anybody else. And so in marriage, we own each other. Um, when a believer, um, a believer should never marry an unbeliever. But one of the things that um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about is that it is an incredible blessing when you end up with a believer married to an unbeliever. Now, I don't wanna, I'm not gonna get into that. I'm not gonna do a whole thing on that, but I just wanna tell you that it is a significant priority that Christians don't marry unbelievers. First Corinthians 7.39 says, if your spouse dies, you can remarry, but only in the Lord. And that, by the way, is found in the Old Testament, is found all places in the New Testament. We only marry believers, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not gonna get into it, but one of the things that it talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 is that when a believer ends up married to an unbeliever, God uses that as an, an incredible spiritual blessing in the life of the unbelieving spouse and in the life of the kids. Now, I grew up in that situation. My mom grew up in church. She married an unbeliever. 
and that's when I say that my home was not what it should have been, that's why. Constant conflict, a mom and a dad who had different perspectives on what the priorities were in life. But my family was so blessed, and I am so thankful for my mom and dad. And my mom and dad were so encouraging to me. And to be able to see my dad come to know the Lord because of my mom in his life. The fact that all of um, my siblings um, have come to know the Lord, and that was because of the way God used my mom in, in, in our lives. And so my encouragement to you, we never pick that. It's like breaking your neck and being a paraplegic. But when you're in that state, it is an incredible blessing, something to be thankful for. And it's something that the church needs to come alongside and encourage and help people to have all the blessings that God intends through that. Um, here's something else I want to share just about purity. Sex is for marriage. I want to encourage you that purity is possible. One of the lies that our culture tells is that it's not realistic. Nobody can actually do that. Do you remember um, uh, Joseph in Egypt, Potiphar's wife coming after him day after day? And he just said, no, how could I sin against God? Purity happens when we're intentional, when we make it a priority, and when pleasing the Lord is the greatest desire in our life. If we think as parents, or if we think as a married couple, that we can pressure and guilt people into being sexually pure, it will not happen. The way that you help people be sexually pure, the way you help yourself be sexual, sexually pure, is to understand what God says, and then secondly, is to love the Lord, to honor God. When you wake up in the morning and you say, my desire is to please God, not please myself, that results in sexual purity. And one of the problems is we got so many Christian religious parents that are running around trying to manage their kids' behavior and stop them from committing sins, but they don't ever work on the heart. They're not asking themselves, do my kids know the Lord? Do my kids love the Lord? Are my kids driven by a desire to please the Lord? And I just want you to know, if, you're, if your kids don't please the Lord and how they treat each other, whether or not they're fighting over their toys, what they want to watch on TV, if they're not pleasing the Lord in those areas, don't think that, oh, magically, they're going to please the Lord in sexual issues. It's not going to happen. And so our primary area of focus for ourselves and for our kids is to encourage people spiritually. So there's tons of people, by the way, who are virgins when they get married. So um, my youth staff, my last church, used to, it used to be the place everybody went to get married. Um, all the young college students wanted to join youth staff because it was just like this thing which people would join youth staff and they'd function in ministry a year or two later and people are just all getting married. So it's where all the single people went. And uh, I had these, these four youth leaders and they, they were dating each other and one was engaged and then both couples broke up. And I remember counseling them through that whole situation as they're being youth leaders, but then they switched. <laughs> these two were married and engaged or they're engaged and dating, they break up, they switch, and now they're dating each other. And they stayed youth leaders and they functioned on youth staff. And then they both got married and they all went to each other's weddings and they're all really close. And you wanna know why? Do you, want, you wanna know what happened physically and sexually in the, that, those two couples' lives while they were dating and engaged? You want to know what happened? Nothing. 
when, when they sat around a youth, the youth staff meeting table, and when they sat around that table after they had broken up and switched partners and things like that, this guy was, they're all now engaged, about to get married, and they weren't looking at each other saying, your lips were all over my fiance, and your hands were all over my fiance. They weren't thinking that because that didn't happen. And they went to each other's weddings and they loved each other and they encouraged each other. And the two men were saying, I'm so thankful for what was happening when you were dating my fiance and now my wife, because God used you to be an encouragement to her. She grew spiritually. You encouraged her spiritual growth. Thank you. It wasn't like, I don't want to see that guy at the wedding. It was, man, I'm so glad he's at the wedding. I just want you to know that is normal Christian behavior. Anything different than that is sinful and worldly. And uh, in the church, it's one thing when the world doesn't understand that. It's a much bigger problem when in the church we don't understand that. So parents need to help kids. The church needs to help each other. We talk about sex being for marriage. I want to show you a study that was done. And uh, what I think is funny is this is called counterintuitive trends. And I just want you to know I can't figure out what's counterintuitive of it. It makes sense to me. So here's the deal. After five years of marriage, who's divorced? So after five years of marriage, people who were virgins when they got married, after five years of marriage, 5% are divorced. 5%, that's five out of 100 after five years of marriage. If the person only had sex with their spouse, in other words, they blew it while they were engaged. If they only had sex with their spouse, 20%. So four times more likely to be divorced if you blow it with the person that you marry. You wanna know why that is? That's not counterintuitive. That makes perfect sense. You want to know what makes a, a healthy marriage? What makes a healthy marriage is a wife who says, my number one priority is pleasing the Lord. I don't do what I feel like doing. I do what's right. When my husband's a jerk to me, I show him love, respect. I honor him. That's what I do because that's what God says I'm supposed to do. And what makes a healthy marriage is when a man says, my job is to put my wife's needs first. I love her. I care about her. When she's a jerk to me, I'm going to treat her with kindness. I'm going to return good for evil. That what, that's what makes a good marriage. You want to know what makes a bad marriage? I do whatever I feel like doing. They yell at me, I'm going to yell back. I will not be treated this way. God says I'm supposed to serve you. No, I'm not going to serve you. I serve myself. Doing whatever you feel like doing is what makes a bad marriage. So when God says don't have sex until you're married and you have sex before you're married, what are you doing? You're saying, oh, I don't care what's right. Um, I care what I feel like doing. And so what is pulls people together before they're married drives people apart after they're married. And that's something I've seen. I've done tons of marriages in my years of marriage, uh, of being a pastor and premarital counseling and then helping people through their struggles after they're married. And all the people who struggle physically before they're married have big conflicts after. Everybody says the first few years of marriage is the hardest. And, and there have been some couples that I've done wedding ceremonies for and their first few years of marriage are great. They don't have any conflict. 
And I think, well, what are some things that mark their relationship? They were morally faithful before they got married. So I just want to say something else to you guys, too. If you blew it, if you have blown it, man, the Lord puts those things back together. You're not, you're not guaranteed to get divorced, but these are just statistics, and they make perfect sense. This is not counterintuitive marriage trends. So um, here's another one for you. Um, people who were virgins when they got married. Um, seven out of ten of them went to church every week. Going to church learning what God says has an impact on your moral behavior. And so that's just another statistic. And, and let me just say this, we don't need statistics for anything. Um, God tells us what to do. God tells us what's right. I throw those things up there just for fun. What the Bible tells us is enough. We don't need statistics for these things. We just do what God tells us to do. So let's look at this next um, section here. So that sex is for marriage. Sexual sin is serious. It breaks the marriage covenant. Um, look at this in verse 31. It says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let her give him a certificate of divorce. But I say that whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced one, woman commits adultery. And here's why. When you get married, that's, you get married before God, and you just deciding, I don't like this person, and I don't want to be married to them anymore, and I want to marry somebody else, means nothing. You can legally get divorced, but before God, you are still married. God doesn't view um, just incompatibilities, and we don't get along, and I don't like the way they spend money as a reason to get divorced. It's sexual immorality that God says, okay, in that case, you don't have to get divorced, but that is something that breaks the marriage covenant. Now, let's think about all the horrific things that are not a cause for divorce. If you're married to somebody who starts to struggle with mental illness, like, could you imagine? I know people that are married to people who live on the streets, they're homeless, they're mentally ill, and the Bible doesn't say the difficulty of mental illness. Oh, if your spouse is mentally ill, you can divorce them. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to be married to a person in that state? How about a lack of love? My, my husband, my wife, they don't love me. They're hostile toward me. Our relationship is characterized by personal antagonism. We don't get along. We don't like each other. And it's torture day after. Have you ever met somebody like that? Have you ever talked to somebody? Have you ever experienced the hell that can be marriage? And that is not a reason for divorce. Now think about drug abuse. You're married to somebody who just takes drugs. They're lazy. They get fired. They don't work. That is not a reason for divorce. What about criminal behavior? My, my spouse goes out and sells drugs, and they're in prison, and they commit all these crimes. That is not a reason for divorce. And we have minimized the priority of sexual purity. And so God takes that seriously. We need to take it seriously. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to work through this passage quickly. <clears throat> Here are some reasons that we need to avoid sexual sin. The first one is this. Um, God says so. God says we're supposed to. And that by itself is enough. Now, 
when you look at 1 Thessalonians, turn your Bibles there. Look at verse 1 and 2. I want to read it. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus that you receive, that as you received instruction from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing and that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. I mean, is that insane? Like, do you think about how strongly Paul is saying this? He says, I ask, I urge, it's in the Lord. I told you this before. You ought to do this. You ought to live this way. You ought to please God. You need to do it more and more. This is a command by the authority of Jesus. Like he piles up all these statements. Why? Because in the New Testament period, it was exactly like today. Oh, sexual immorality is normal. It's like that's for some other people at some other time. And he says, no, this is a priority. It is God's will. That's the second one. Look at this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like Gentiles who don't know God. Sexual immorality is for unbelievers, not for believers. Now, sanctification has to be set apart, and it says that you abstain. Sexual purity doesn't just happen. It's something that you work on. It's something that you're committed to. That only happens because of a focused attention in your life. That doesn't just accidentally happen. And that you're not to control yourself in lustful passion. I'll never forget I, this, my preaching for, professor at seminary. Um, he's, a, he's a pastor in, in uh, East L.A. And one time he's in his church preaching, and there's this couple that's dating sitting in the front row. And they're like all over each other. They're laying on each other. They're holding each other. They're, like, they're all over each other. So he's preaching in the middle of sermons. He stops. He says, hey, are you married to that woman? And they look up like this in the middle of church. It's like, get your hands off her. That's somebody else's wife. She's not yours till you're married. Like that's what he said in the middle of church in East L.A. We don't behave in lustful passion like people who don't know God. We don't put our hands all over somebody who potentially is going to belong to someone else. Um... One of, one of the things we say is that it's okay, right? Our culture says it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Did you know that sexual sin hurts everybody? It doesn't matter if you consent. It hurts everyone. Um, verse 5. Uh, or Actually, let's go to, yeah, here we go. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no one transgresses, that's to sin against, or defrauds or, and wrongs his brother in the matter. You are sinning against whoever you have sex with. You are defrauding them. You are taking something that doesn't belong to you. So it's a transgression and it's defrauding. Um, it hurts everybody. When you, when you sin sexually, um, 1 Corinthians says that, that flee immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. You sin against yourself in sexual immorality. 
You sin against the person that you're with in sexual immorality. Now let's talk about how does that impact marriage. I'm going to train you as I'm dating and as we're engaged. I'm going to train you to disregard God. I'm going to train you to sin against me. I'm going to train you to sin against myself, against yourself. And then we're shocked and we're surprised that people have marriage problems. Why is this a surprise? Um, Rather in marriage to say, I care about your your physical purity. I want to please the Lord. I want to honor the Lord. And here's all the things that we're going to do in our dating relationship because I love you. Here's how I'm going to bring other people into my life. Here's how we're going to talk about things. We're going to have accountability. We're not going to do dumb things. We're not, I'm not coming to your house when nobody else is home to watch TV. Um, I am going to guard and protect you. I'm going to guard and protect me. And that is an investment in my marriage. And it's primarily because I love God and I want to please him. And actually, I love God more than I love you. You want to know what makes a successful marriage? When your spouse loves God more than they love you. Because loving you will never be enough for a good marriage. But loving God always results in a good marriage. So sexual sin is destructive to everyone involved. Verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. It's not what God's called us for. Therefore, look at this, verse 8, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. Ah, that's just your opinion. That's what you think. No, this is something that comes straight from God himself. And when you disregard God, you are disregarding his authority. He made the world and he made you. And you're saying, God, you are not in charge of me. And I just want you to know God is in charge of you. So you're disregarding God's authority. You're disregarding his advice. The God who made the world, the God who designed everything, says to you, here's the best way to live your life. And you say, no, God, I say I know better than you. So you're disregarding his authority. You're disregarding his his advice. And you're disregarding the person of Jesus himself. This, this, This God who loves you, who understands you, who cares about you, who died for you, and you're disregarding him. You know what I think is crazy? Is there are Christians that walk around talking about how sexual sin is no big deal. And some people even think the Bible doesn't address it. Um, that's insane. And, but you want to know what that's a result of? That is a result of the church and of believers not reading God's word, not taking it seriously, just blending into our culture, not having a renewed mind. So here's the third part, my third point, which is about to go very quickly. Sexual sin is not hopeless. God takes bad things and he makes them good. One of the things I'm very thankful for, um, when I think about my own life, the, the things that if I could like hit a delete button in my life, they're all related to this area. Like, there's a lot of ways I blew it, a lot of sins that, that I committed. And it's like you, 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 you sin, you blow it, and you think, oh man, I'm so glad the Lord has saved me and that that's different. But if I could hit a delete button, this is the stuff I would want to delete. And one of the things I'm so thankful for is I've learned about all kinds of things in life. I've learned about how God knows better than I do. I'm a better parent because of the mistakes I made. And I realize, okay, when people do this, this is how that ends up. 
And so I'm a better parent for my kids because of the things God's taken me through. I appreciate God's grace and God's forgiveness so much more. And one of the things that Michelle shared when she was sharing her testimony, sorry, I didn't ask your permission for this, but when Michelle, um, when Michelle was talking about um, coming to know the Lord, one of the things that she said is she said, I, I grew up as a believer and there were all kinds of damaged, broken things in my life as an unbeliever. Thank you. Got to get what I mean, not what I say. So I grew up as an unbeliever. But when I look at my life, my life is like I grew up as a Christian in a Christian home. The, the way that God had completely restored everything. Um, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what's gone wrong in your life. It doesn't matter if you blew it two months ago, uh, last week, or last night. God is gracious. He is loving. He is forgiving. But because God's gracious and loving and forgiving doesn't mean we disregard what he says about life. We need to be diligent and we need to be faithful in this. And we'll close with this. Titus chapter 3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God loves you. He'll change you. He'll turn your life around. The church is a place that we come broken. It's where God puts us back together. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Pray that you would help us to be people that love you, that are willing to obey you. Lord, that we take this whole issue seriously. Lord, help us not to buy into satanic lies and destructive beliefs. Lord, help us to have the blessings in our life that you intend. And Lord, for, for those who have blown it in that area of their life, God, thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your kindness in your name. Amen.